0: you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. And we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Our focus will be on verses 1, 2, and 3 this morning. We began this consideration of this passage last week. Paul writes, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Well, these opening words to Romans chapter 2 come after you read the concluding words of Romans chapter 1. And there, Paul presents us with sin, what is, to us at least, sin in its most obvious expressions, in its most blatant forms. And as we read through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and as we see the accumulation of the litany of the expressions of sin that rise from those who reject God and suppress the truth of God and give themselves over to idolatry and paganism, as we read them, they begin to pile up. We sense a sense of repulsion at what we're reading. There is built within us a sense of inward indignation, which is appropriate, but then Paul after having identified you might say those places where we see the most blatant expressions of sin in our society and Paul there is actually describing the sin as it was rampant through the Roman society of the people that he is writing to in Rome. Then after doing all that Paul turns and he directs his attention in chapter 2 to the moralist. Paul is using a form of communication called diatribes. This was common with the Greeks of his day in which they imagined a person who was providing a protest to the arguments that they were making. And so they engage their protest and they address them. And so Paul imagines an individual who is speaking up to what he's heard. Amen, Paul, what you're saying is true. These people are terrible people and deserve the judgment of God. And Paul then turns to this individual and he addresses him directly. He's the moralist. So Romans chapter 2 introduces us to the moralist. The moralist, by his own judgment recognizes sin and he recognizes it's just punishment, but then he sets out on a path to escape that punishment through his own morality. He sees the sin of the world all around him and he thinks himself the better of it and that somehow he can work his way out of it and this is the problem with moralism. It's a false means of salvation. Recognizing sin, identifying sin in others, Feeling a sense of indignance at the immorality of the world in which you live in does not work in excusing the sin in your own life. It will only reveal that you know enough of the standards of right and wrong, that you know enough of the standard of God's perfect righteousness to be completely accountable for your own actions and behavior. Moralism does not save us. It only shows that we are accountable before God's judgment and that we're without excuse and somewhat of what we spoke about last week. We are condemned by our judgments of others because our judgments reveal that we know what is right and we know what is wrong and yet if we look closely we'll discover we do the same things. We're guilty of the same sins to some degree and not only this but our ability to recognize the sin and this is where we go wrong. Our ability to recognize sin is not usually an expression of our own righteousness. Often people recognize and see the sins of others and they also think not only is an expression of their own righteousness, but they think it's an expression of their own self-righteousness. They feel as though they're gaining some level of self-righteousness over others because they can identify what they're doing that is wrong and that's not how it works. In fact... Being able to identify the sin in others is not simply an expression of your own righteousness. More likely, it's an expression of your self-righteousness. It's also not an expression that you're, necessarily, that you're walking close to God. That you're in His presence or that you're obeying Him. It's not a sign, necessarily, when you recognize the wrong in the world around you and the sin in the world around you, that you're seeing it from the vantage point of being in the presence and walking in the presence of God and knowing God's will. In fact, actually, this is what we learned at... Oftentimes we tend to make our judgments about what is right and what's wrong and we tend to make our judgments of what is not righteous that we see in fellow sinners. We can make those judgments. We can hone in on those sins because there's something akin to it in our own natures. We're able to point to sin in others because we have sin in ourselves. It's almost like we have an affinity to recognize it. Even if we don't like it, even if we disapprove of it, we're drawn to it and we're able to point it out because it it resonates with something that's in our own It runs close to things that we ourselves are engaged in at some level. We're not righteous. We're sinful and so it's not right for us to be judging. I think the idea here is that God is right now taking judgment on our lives. The Greek word for judgment actually is the word of sorting out all the details to know the exact truth of everything. And God is even now sorting out all the truth and he knows the truth of everything. And so we're before the judge and we're before his judgment. And it's not appropriate when you're before the judgment of God to turn your head to judge others and to make your judgments on others. No, our ability to judge others is usually a reflection of the fact that we share an affinity with those who are sinning like us in some manner. Maybe it's more egregious than what we think we do, but it still demonstrates that we have an affinity in that way. The second thing is this. As sinners, we usually follow a pattern of making judgments of the wrong that others do in order to justify ourselves. We we can't really consider ourselves to be that bad when you think about how bad other people are. And it's kind of a default mode that people go into, self-justifying sinners go into, To make themselves feel better about themselves is to point out how bad everybody else is. The next thought here that I just want to develop real quickly, and we talked about these things last week, is that it doesn't mean that we can't come to conclusions of what is right and wrong. And it doesn't mean that we can't come to conclusions of what is right and wrong as we walk in the presence of God. As we walk in the light of God's presence, there becomes an apparent awareness of the sin that's around us But it starts with an awareness of the sin that's within us. When you are approaching and beginning to see sin and identifying sin because you're walking in the presence of God, the first sins that you see are not someone else's, they're your own. You're aware of your own failure, your own sin, and what's wrong with you. This is different than when you're moralizing. When you're moralizing and you're building your ethical system in order to prove yourself and prove that you're a good person, and you recognize sin, it's usually not your own sins that you see first, but the sins of others. And then you try to distance yourself from them by honing a better, and improving your own actions and the way you behave so that you don't be like them. And that's the moralizing approach. Totally different And the way in which we will see and understand sin when we're walking in the presence of God. And when we're walking in the presence of God and we see our sins, the next result is, when we do that, is when you're moralizing, what happens is you distance yourself from people because you're looking for a position of moral superiority. But when you're looking at it from the framework and from the perspective of being and drawing near to God himself, then what happens is you don't distance yourself from people, but you draw near to Jesus You want him to wash you and you want him to cleanse you and you want to be clean before him and so you avail yourself of the blood that he shed for your life to wash you and cleanse you from your sins. And then also, you don't remove yourself from people but as a result of experiencing that cleansing, you turn to those who need that cleansing themselves and you pray and you intercede for them longing that they might know that same cleansing power that you've experienced yourself. This is something totally different than seeing sin from a moralizing perspective. This recognizing and seeing sin from the perspective of walking in God's light. John talks about this phenomenon in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, John says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Ah, it appears that we're drawn closer to one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Here we are walking with God. In his light, and as we do, he reveals to us our own sinfulness. Then we seek the cleansing for that sin that comes through Christ alone and through his shed blood for our sins alone. And as a result of this, we are not driven away from people, but we're drawn to people who have experienced the same thing. We're drawn to those who know the fellowship of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Washing us from our sins. And not only that, we find through Christ a compelling within us to be drawn out to a world of men and women who need to know that same cleansing as well. It doesn't separate us from the world, it doesn't separate us from one another. When we walk in the light of God's presence, when we see sin and we see it first in our own lives, and then if we see it in the world around us and those individuals around us, it doesn't draw us away from them, it draws us towards them. Longing to see them made right and see them made clean. But if your judgments are to establish yourself in righteousness, you'll find that you're more and more removed from those that you're judging as you carry out your moralistic behavior. This is a good guide for us, by the way. If you're to assess your life to see whether your awareness of sin is an expression of a spirit of moralizing, an experience of kind of self-justifying yourself, you'll identify it this way. Is our assessment of sin in our world... Pressing us more and more into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins? Is our assessment of the decay in our society filling us with a sense of moral superiority or a sense of the superiority of our Savior Jesus Christ, who we long the world to know? Is our assessment driving us away from those who are stained with sin and sin is running down their lives? Or is our assessment of sin drawing us nearer to them? Wanting to see them cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ as we ourselves recognize our need to be cleansed. Yesterday I spoke to a dear man, I might refer to him a little bit later, in the message who's been a great benefit in my life, a godly man, and his first comment to me is, as I get older and walk in my faith, I discover how much more and more I need a Savior. I so need a Savior. What is he saying? I know my own proclivities. I know the sinfulness of my heart as I draw near to God. I don't gain a sense of moral superiority over others. I see my need, my need of a Savior to wash me and cleanse me. We do not want to be Christian moralists. We want to be Christian evangelists bringing to a decaying and dying world the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ who alone can make the foulest, most defiled clean. That's the way we want to approach the world. Last week, I wanted you to see the residue of this smug self-righteousness as it often rests upon those who have believed in Jesus Christ. It's possible to have come to Christ and receive Him as our Savior and believed in Him, but there's still an impulse of our flesh that constantly seeking to justify itself and exalt itself, and it insinuates itself in the attitudes that we have towards one another and towards the world in which we live and it promotes a sense of self-righteousness and it distances us from one another and the very world that we're called to reach. It's wrong and God's judgment is against it and we need to see it in ourselves. And so, as we looked at the passage, I think I tried to turn it towards ourselves. I said, now listen, be careful what we're reading here. Be careful what you say amen to because Paul is setting a trap for us. He's revealing a sin that so often rises in our own life so common to us but having said that what I really want you to see in this text is that Paul is an actuality in his mind he's addressing the unbelieving moralist of his day and age they existed at that time as well there were those men of high standing in the Roman world who shook their head and spoke against the immorality of the age in which they lived in one was a teacher of Nero by the name of Seneca and Seneca was later because of his moral positions and standings He was even called by some of the church fathers a brother in the truth because of his moral positions. But Paul is actually speaking against this moralist and these high moral standings and opinions against the wretchedness of the world that they live in. And revealing that this moralist is, he is in just as much a danger of the wrath of God than anyone else. And actually, that's the whole point in what Paul is laying here. He's laying an argument for the necessity of the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ alone, but in order for him to bring to us this good news and to establish this argument, he has to bring us before the bad news. And the bad news is that we're under the wrath and judgment of God in and of ourselves, in our own supposed righteousness, and our own moral rectitude. We've all fallen. We all demonstrate that we're merely accountable for God and in that accountability we're facing God's judgment and so Paul turns towards this moralist and he basically says three things to him in these three verses and the first thing he says to him is that he has no excuse he has no excuse the moralist is without excuse his judgments reveal as we've said that he knows the standard of right and wrong by which he himself will one day be judged and although he judges others at the same time he actually in some measure does the very same thing this was two weeks ago that I offered this message to you. I received an email earlier this week from someone who was not able to be here this morning and said, I'm still chewing on the last sermon. They're still thinking about it. Well, I was as well. I was beginning to listen, and for the first week at least, I was listening to the conversations I was having with my own family members and with my wife and the conversations you we were engaging in. And I felt uncomfortable because I saw that so often the nature of our conversation was to note how wrong other people are and how crooked things have gotten and somehow I began to feel the sense of self-promotion that comes through much of what we converse about posturing ourselves in a place in a proper place of standing without laying ourselves into the life of the Lord Jesus alone after that, I began to think more and more about this matches in terms of who Paul was addressing. So it's what I've been doing over this last week. And as a result, I've been paying attention to what's on the news. Paying attention to the conversations that I've had with my neighbors just recently. Paying attention to the social media broadcast that people make through their different social media platforms. And what I realize is that this is not just my problem, this is the world's problem. This is the primary way in which individuals engage one another in conversation. Constantly taking moral measurements of others and their failings and their faults and you'll see it. You'll see one political party is castigating the other political party for the, let's be honest, the very same things they're doing. Oftentimes the one who speaks the loudest about the crimes of what somebody else is committing, you can look in their own lives and see, wait a second, it's a true projection because... They're more guilty of it than the one they're pointing the finger at. They're doing it more plainly, more clearly, and they can't even see it. But it's right before them, as plain as the nose on their face. Practice this. Start listening to the conversations that take place. Start listening to where they can't to, where they go to. And that might not start out this way, but start to listen how they begin to unfold. And somewhere along the line, the person is gaining merit for their observations. And he's gaining merit at the expense of somebody else. As he expresses his views. His views. But then measure their life and you'll discover that, well, I don't think they would measure up as much as they think they would. I think they would find themselves faulty as they try to vindicate themselves. Faulty that, uh, well, they do the same things to some extent. People are blind to their own sins. And they think, uh, well, I haven't committed murder. And I have not an adulterer like others. But they ignore the fact that murder and adultery can find expressions that they... They might not understand or know. The Lord Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 5, right? He said that murder can take place with a word. If you say, thou fool, you're in danger of hellfire. And that adultery can take place with a look. If you look upon a person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. All of a sudden, as you begin to understand the truth of what God is saying, you have to drop the stones from your hand, by which you're going to stone the offenders around you. Because you recognize it's in yourself. Paul himself thought of himself as a quite righteous man. He had followed all the laws as meticulously as he could. And he thought he was innocent of any grave sins. And then he tells us in Romans 7 that he began to really consider what it meant to covet. And as he began to consider what it meant to covet, he saw that there was all manner of coveting in his life. Not only was he not clear of sin, but as he began to pull on that thread of that one sin of coveting, his whole structure and ideology of himself as this great moral man began to unravel and fall apart before his eyes. And it began to conceive in him all manner, he says, of sin. He saw it was rife throughout his life, filling his life such the way of all people if they came before God and they understood what God commanded and what God desired of us, they would see that the very things that they're judging others in, they're implicated themselves. Having said that, people still go on with this judgment you have a conversation with somebody and they'll complain about how everything's gone wrong in our world. And if you press them to give personal experiences of it, they'll be able to tell you how they've been wronged by others. You know, but, you know, there used to be in our day, in my day and age, a person's bond was his word. a handshake was all you needed, whatever it is. And they'll talk about it and how everything's so treacherous nowadays and how people have betrayed them and what they've done to them. You listen to them. They'll tell you those types of accounts and let them score it up. Let them keep talking. Let them keep going through it. And then when it's done, you could say something like this. Well, listen, I think that's all true. But I also understand from God's word that it's true that one day God says that all of us are going to stand before his judgment. And we're all going to be judged. And we're all going to be given account. And God is going to exact his punishment on every sin and every falsehood and every lie and every deceit and every act of, uh, you know, treachery that has risen from the life of these individuals you're speaking of. All of them, they're going to be brought to account. God's not going to let them off the hook. But let me ask you something. You're also going to stand before Him. You're also going to have to answer for your own sins. How is it going to turn out for you? How is it going to How's it going to measure up for you? Oh, they'll say, oh, I don't, I don't want to think about that. Oh, I don't believe in those things. So All of a sudden, all of a sudden, they'll be all full of grace and all full of mercy. Oh, we'll just wave something. It'll all work out okay. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. You have no excuse. God's eyes are upon you. You know what the standard is. To some extent, you know what the standard is, and God is going to hold you to account. We'll look at this further on in the book of Romans, but we'll see that Paul is going to expand upon this thought by reminding us that each man is going to be judged according to his deeds. Every part of it, every point, a judgment is going to take place. Here's the next thing he says. It's in verse 2. He says there's no disguise. Not only is there no excuse, but he says there is no disguise. He says, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who do such things. The moralists will be judged by God's truth. God knows all of that individual's sins and all of those sins and all of his indiscrepancies are going to be set out in the open one day. There will be no disguises. There will be just as there are no excuses. Individuals cover themselves and clothe themselves in all forms of decorum and position and yet every individual has something They're glad nobody knows. That's hidden and kept to themselves. Every individual has a thought in the day. They wouldn't want to have escape be broadcast for anyone to know. All of it is going to be known. All of it is going to be revealed. Nothing that's going to be disguised. The Bible speaks of a a day that's coming in the future of a great apostasy that will take place in which people will wander away from the faith. I've often wondered what will be the trigger for that great apostasy and Not long ago, I began to think of what a possibility could be. As a result, I wrote the men who are working with me in our ministry around the world, a very strong reminder of the way they ought to conduct themselves and behave themselves. I could see how it would go like this. Have you ever noticed, by the way, when you have your phone nowadays, that if you're having a conversation with your wife and you say something like, you know, I don't really like the ladder I have. I wish I had a different ladder because this ladder is just too short and it's kind of rickety, and then you go on your phone and you all of a sudden start noticing your phone is posting advertisements for ladders? You're being listened to. You know? There's information that's being gathered. What if all that information, pastors, of where you went to with your phone, what your conversations were, and where you went with your searches and your search engine? and the things that you let your eyes go to on your phone or on your computer, what if one day it was broadcast to those under your ministry and they saw If it took place, I think it would cause almost a crisis of faith in individuals. It might generate a great apostasy because you've posed and you've presented yourself as this paragon of virtue and as a fount of great truth and As a man who's faithfully preaching God's word. And yet you weren't living faithfully in your private places. So I wrote all the men of my ministry. Guard yourself against what you say. Even in the closet in your home. Guard yourself by what you allow ever to come across the screen of your computer. Or your telephone. The enemy could gather all that together and use it to undermine the faith of people. And drive them away from Christ. I don't know if it's going to work that way or not. I don't know if it's going to happen that way in the end. I can tell you this, that God is going to make known all the secrets that we do and all the things that take place. God is keeping record and you can deceive people and you deceive yourself more than anyone else. But you cannot deceive God. He is a God of all truth. He will judge us according to all truth. The laws that you've broken, He knows. He knows the when and the where and the how and the extent to which to transgress his law. Knows the proper judgment for each thing you've done. Each sin will be accounted for. The price will be exacted in punishment because God is just and God will render justice. And God's judgment is according to truth. Think about a number of passages of scripture that reveal this. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 2 has a number of individuals that are coming. And they're wanting to give themselves to the Lord Jesus. Because they're enamored by the works that he does. Their hearts haven't changed. But they want to be with the man who's doing such impressive things. John 2 verses 23 and 24 speak to us of the judgments that Christ makes towards men. It says in verse 23 and 24 of John 2. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Twenty-five, Verse 25 says, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knows it all. He knows exactly what's motivating you, the spring from which you're doing things, whether you're doing it for the right reason or the wrong reason. He knows it all. In Psalms 139, we just had read. We read you those first four verses that were read to us in the scripture reading. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue. How many husbands have said to their wives, Honey, what did I say? There's... There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How about Psalm 11, verse 4? The psalmist writes, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. You know how that is. You look close. You squint your eyes to study something. He's saying God is observing closely and testing all the ways of the sons of men. He sees it all. He knows the truth of all these things. You can't slip past him. You can't go in disguise before him. He knows all these things. Here's the last thing he says to the moralist. Not only is there no excuse and there's no disguise, but there's also no escape. The moralist judgment by God is inescapable. He's without excuse and he's without escape. This is... Something that God emphasizes in his word over and over again. That God will have his day of judgment. The Lord Jesus when he shares his parables. You'll see that a large portion of the parables of the Lord Jesus. Point to a day and a moment in which God will conclusively draw all things together. In one great disclosing judgment of the behavior and the sins of man. There's a final conclusive judgment that's coming. And as we've said before there's good news that God has to give to us. But it can only come to us. If we satisfactorily comprehend the bad news, that we're our sinners, that we're accountable for our sins, that the truth will be found out to the full extent of all that we've done and all the sins we've committed, and God will judge us accordingly by those sins, and we can't escape it. You know, we have heard it said that there are only two things that you can be certain of, taxes and death, death and taxes. I think there are people who have actually not paid their taxes. You might go to Erie and Jaya and climb back up into the jungles in some far mountain place, and you'll find a tribe of people have never paid taxes. Never. They've escaped taxes. And I know that at least Enoch and Elijah escaped death. The other day I was speaking to a friend who thinks that he actually has a very serious disease, a fatal disease. And he said, I've decided my hope is in the rapture. What does he want? He wants the Lord Jesus to come so that he can escape dying physically. It's going to happen someday. There's a number of us that are just going to be here waiting. The Lord Jesus is going to come from us and we're going to escape death. But not one of us is going to escape the judgment seat. Every one of us is going to stand before the judge to be judged for the deeds that we've done in our flesh. You will not, you will not escape the judgment Here's how we're going to conclude these things. Remember how Paul began this train of thought that he's leading us through. He began it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this is what he said. He's wanting to bring us to the good news that he's going to begin unfolding to us in the middle of Romans chapter 3, but he has to establish and convince us of the bad news and we have to accept it or the good news is irrelevant. It means nothing. In Romans 1, 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against God. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You might want to take your pen and underline the word all. We must accept this argument. If we don't accept this argument that God's wrath is against all sin, then we will of necessity need to deny the cross of Jesus Christ and the punishment that he paid for all sin there. You deny your sin you deny that God will judge all sin in complete truth? you deny that there is a day of final judgment that will come upon all sin? And then you must begin denying the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's another way to put it. Is there an answer for our sins? Is there an answer for God's truthful revealing of all our sins? Is there an answer for the exacting judgment that he will bring upon all our sins? If God is going to judge all of us in truth and bring all of our sins into account at his judgment seat, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? This is what Paul is saying to the moralist. He's telling him this is going to take place. Well, the answer is this, that God has a truthful and just way of addressing our sins completely and fully and saving us from them at the same time. And as a result, there's only one way of escape. One way to escape from it. We're going to go ahead here for a moment. Go to Romans chapter 3. We're jumping ahead in Paul's argument, but it's good for us to remind ourselves of these things. It's why we need to believe these things. It's why we need to believe that God is going to judge even the moralist who lives this Find moral life because that man is without excuse because he still goes on sinning at some level and he knows there's a standard of righteousness that he's offended. And we need to understand that he cannot disguise himself in his moral activity. God will find him out. He knows it. And we ought to appreciate that God will judge all of us truthfully according to all that we've done and all that we've thought and all of our actions and it will all be exposed. We need to come to terms with these things and believe these things because in believing these things, it opens up for us the necessity And the reality and the depth of reality of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we read of in Romans chapter 3. Let me read to you verses 24 through 26. Paul is going to describe how it is that we're made just before God. We who are found to be sinners. Go back earlier in Romans chapter 3. And there Paul will now pronounce a litany of sin that he pronounced in in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, which he posed against the idolater and the pagan, and now he'll say the exact same things even more against everybody and anybody, the moralist and the religious individual as well. He'll say that all of them are guilty before God as a result of that. All of them are pronounced guilty before God. And what is the answer to all these things? It comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Being justified, he writes, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. The idea there is the object of wrath or judgment. God set apart his son as the object of our wrath and our judgment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the answer. For all that he understands and meticulously knows, it's in what Christ has done for us. This last week I had the opportunity to read a historical account of a group of individuals who in the mid-1600s had put to death the first King Charles of England. We just had, uh, this week, Charles III sent to the throne as King of England, but back in the 1640s, the first King Charles was a horrible king. And he waged war against his own people. What was really the bloodiest civil war ever in England, and as a result of thousands and thousands of his subjects being put to death, he was defeated. He was defeated by a general by the name of Oliver Cromwell, and a group of individuals who wanted to set up a republic in England. They didn't know what to do with the king because the king was not willing to recognize that they'd been defeated. He still wanted to prate about and demand they would all bow before him. And so not knowing to do, finally they assembled a judgment and they brought him before judgment. There were over a hundred judges that stood before him and there was a trial that took place and all the crimes they had committed were brought forward and all the people that they had put to death were brought forward as a witness against him. And finally they decided that the only justice to be given was he had to be put to death. And so they sentenced him to death and they all signed his death warrant. Some 10 years later, the re- attempt at the republic failed because individuals got greedy and all of them decided they wanted to be the kings themselves in some way or another. So they invited back the son of Charles I, Charles II, to be the king, only with the promises that he would be lenient to those that he ruled over. And he became the king, but as soon as he became the king, he reneged, he reneged on his promise to be lenient. And instead, he went after and wanted to put to death everyone who had signed that warrant, that warrant against the king. And they found these men, they hunted them down, they took them and they hung them and kept them alive. And then they had them drawn and quartered and they gave them just horrific, violent, put them to death in horrific and violent ways. And one by one they were dying. And there was one individual by the name of Colonel Hutchinson. His wife had relations to the royalists that were now in power. And his wife knew just the right timing and the right words to say and just the right things to affect mercy before the king. And she coached her husband, and she got the resources from the... She was a cousin of the advisor to the king and so just the right language at just the right time and she got her husband to say all the right things so that he would escape this judgment. While all of his compatriots were dying and being put to death, he was able to slide through the judgment because he knew what to say at the right time and he was able to obscure what his part was in the actions that he was forced and he was coerced into signing the names and he was able to genuflect at the right moment in order to gain the king's mercy and he was just one of a few individuals who were able to escape that judgment. But... It didn't set well with him. He began to resent his wife for guiding him through this kind of deceptive way. He began to read nothing but his Bible. And as he read his Bible, he came to the conclusion that they had only done what was just. They were brought to the decision they had made to execute the king out of justice because he had been such a bloody and horrible king. And he began to also feel guilty that he had gained the mercy of the king by what he called was an act of deceit. He gained mercy from an unjust king by an act of deceit. And so he gave himself up. He was thrown into a prison and within 11 months he died. And if you read the account, those 11 months are some of his most happy months. He's taken from the place where he was a lord of a great manor. He's thrown into prison and yet there he had God's word and he had peace and he, he died in comfort and joy. But he, he was concerned that he had gained mercy through deceiving an unjust king. One day we're going to stand before the king of kings and the Lord of lords who is just in every way and you will not gain mercy in that way. You won't be able to deceive him. He knows all things and sees all things and you'll have to answer for all things. So how is it that you will be able to receive mercy from a God who knows all the truth about you? In Isaiah 53, 11, we read in the last part of that verse, these statements. With full knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. With full knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What does it mean? It means that Jesus knew the particulars of all our sin. He knew the cost of all of our sin. He knew in truth the exacting nature of every offense that we have raised and will ever raise against God. And he knew it when he went to the cross. He had full knowledge of it all. And at the cross, not only did he offer up an exacting judgment of our sin, but he paid an exacting price for it. He died for it all. For what he truly knew. Martin Lloyd-Jones of this writes, God's judgment is according to truth, always, everywhere, even when His own Son is the sin bearer. He spared him nothing, because His judgment was always according to the truth. Nothing was spared when God poured out His judgment upon His Son. This, they agreed, was the way that God would pay for our sins. So that he might justly have mercy on us with no deceit. How do you find that mercy? You stop living in deceit. You come before God and you tell the truth and you confess it. And you acknowledge your sin. Even those you don't see. You draw near to him. You take hold of him. You believe and trust In the righteousness that Christ alone provides you. And you give up. And you let go of every impulse. At self-righteous justification. It will fall short. You take hold of the full answer that comes in Jesus Christ alone. And you say in the cross of Christ. I glory towering over the wrecks of time. I'll glory in him alone. I'll glory in him. A family friend of ours named Marion Bush. Passed away this Friday. She was a very dear lady and had spoke wonderfully in my life. As soon as I heard that she died, my mind immediately brought to mind verses that she taught me when I spent a week visiting her family in her home as a 16-year-old and the things that she said to me. I spoke to her husband yesterday. He shared with me, now Marion had been getting dementia, and, and as a result, she was forgetting herself and she was becoming more mentally feeble. And in August she fell and she struck her head and she went into a coma. And she was in the coma for some time at a hospital. But at some point in time she came out of the coma for a short while. And she was alert and she had her wits about her. And he came to the hospital to visit her after she'd come out of the coma. And he went into the room and in the room there were four nurses gathered around her bed. And she was sitting up in her bed and she was speaking to them. And he said she was telling them that there was a day of judgment that was coming In which God was going to hold all people to account. And that she was going before the judge herself. And she didn't want them to go before that judge. Without an answer for their sins. And she was calling upon them to put their faith in the Savior. You cannot exalt the gospel. Unless you are confronted with the great truth. But when you do. On your deathbed. You have a message to give to the world. If we're living out not a moralistic life, not an ethical life so that we can prove how good we are, but if you're living out a life of holiness because you walk in the presence of God and you love Him and you go to Him as He exposes to your sin and you intercede for your neighbors as you see the struggles in their own life, then your life will, this may shock you, but your life will teach your neighbors and your friends of judgment, It will teach them of judgment. But it will also be the point at which you can invite them into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, before your word, we bow. We want not to excuse ourselves. It seems as though too often when we think of the end, we default to a, well, it will all work out in the end. Well, God is a good God. He'll deal with me without dealing with my sin. Not true. It's not true. Your goodness is, O God, found in the fact that it does not betray your justice, but answers it completely through your Son, Jesus Christ. We bless you and praise you for that. We exalt the Savior and shall throughout all eternity for His answer his sublime, wonderful, far-reaching answer to our sin when he died for us. Oh God, we want to live in the light of that truth. We want to live out the gospel. We want to live in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and exalt in it. We want to come daily under the cleansing of the life and the blood that was shed for us at the cross and love you all the more as a result and long that others might learn to love you too. Lord Jesus, keep us. Beneath the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.